here on Mountain Lion today to let you know that Dr. Faith Fitzgerald, a physician and educator for over 50 years, died peacefully on December 3, 2021 at UC Davis Medical Center with her family and friends by her side. She was 78 years of age. Faith grew up in Santa Barbara, California, attended University of California, Santa Barbara for college where she majored in zoology and University of California, San Francisco School of Medicine for medical school. She did her internship and residency at UCSF and completed her chief residency at San Francisco General Hospital. She was on faculty at UCSF for four years and then was recruited to University of Michigan by one of her mentors, Dr. Hibbard Williams, where she stayed for two years. In 1980, she was recruited back to California again by Dr. Hibbard Williams, who was now the Dean of the School of Medicine at UC Davis School of Medicine. Time does not allow for a full summary of everything that Faith did or led or accomplished, but just to name a few things she led, she was Division Chief of General Internal Medicine for six years, Internal Medicine Residency Program Director for 17 years, Vice Chair of Medicine for 15 years, Assistant Dean of the School of Medicine for five years, Associate Dean of Humanities and Bioethics for nine years, and Director of the Humanities and Bioethics course at UC Davis for seven years. Faith was even the acting chair of dermatology for one year in 2000 to 2001, quite an achievement since she was not a board-certified dermatologist. Faith spoke widely and often and did numerous visiting professorships in the United States, Europe, Mexico, Canada, and Japan, received over 50 awards during her career, and published dozens upon dozens of articles, editorials, and letters to the editor. This barely summarizes her career adequately, but suffice to say she was a giant in the field of medicine. What she was to me was a brilliant colleague, a friend, at times refreshingly sardonic, at other times annoyingly sardonic, warm, kind, friendly, funny, 
not afraid to speak her mind ever, someone unafraid to re-examine what we do and why we do it, and someone who is always 110% about patients, their stories, their lives, and each patient's uniqueness. She will be missed for all that she was to so many of us. But I do not want to leave you with my words here. I want to leave you with her words, because one of the things she also was was a gifted storyteller. It may sound a little odd to you, but I often find myself telling her stories to my teams when I'm on the medicine wards. I tell them stories she told me herself directly, as well as stories she has written in medical journals like the Annals of Internal Medicine and places closer to home like the Sierra Sacramento Medical Society News Bulletin, which had published a number of her remarkable accounts in recent years. I tell these stories not just because of the way she spun them, but because I learned so much medicine from them. She intuitively understand, understood that it's the stories around patients and their cases that helps us first connect to the patient as human and secondarily to the patient as a human being with a disease. And so to leave you with her words... The rest of this podcast is three stories I heard Faith tell in the past nine years. The third one, Du Bois on East 8, winner of the first ACP Annals of Internal Medicine Story Slam in Philadelphia a few years back, is played with the permission of the Annals of Internal Medicine. Thanks to the ACP for allowing me to use it. If you want to watch the original Annals Story Slam video telling this story, simply search Faith Fitzgerald Annals of Internal Medicine Story Slam, and a link to the original Annals story will pop up. The other two stories were originally posted on Mountain Lion and recorded at the annual UC Davis Internal Medicine Story Slam. I hope that you will enjoy hearing Faith again. We'll miss you, Dr. Faith Fitzgerald. It has been truly an honor having you as a colleague, leader, teacher, and friend. And to respond to your ponderings in one of the podcasts here contained, yes, we promise that we will continue teaching what you taught us, which were things, in turn, that were taught to you by your wonderful teachers and mentors. My uh, talk is called The Heartbreak of Psoriasis. This used to be an advertisement for a medicine in commercial magazines that did not work, but the phrase stuck with me. And part of it had to do with a man I knew when I was an intern at San Francisco. And when we first met in the four-bed coronary care unit at Moffitt Hospital, one of my patients was in his early 50s, and I was half of his age. I'd reviewed the chart notes of the intern who had preceded me and who described our patient as having had two cardiac arrests so far. Following his admission to CCU a week before, uh, due to coronary disease ischemia, and to make things worse, he also had long, present, and severe psoriasis. He was so unstable, the attending notes from the consultant cardiac surgeons said that he would likely not survive open-heart surgery and neither percutaneous transluminal coronary angioplasty, let alone stenting, existed at the time. The chart notes by the CCU specialty nurses, and this was a very new phenomenon, by the way, the CCU, these nurses hated him. They wrote of him as a problem patient because he was always rude to them. And worse, he was highly educated and articulate. He was a lawyer, and he insulted them with such crafted disdain. 
Several of the nurses had already simply refused to take care of him. When I went to see him in his bed, I quickly became the target of his barbs. He was picking at his total body psoriasis, and blood pooled on his skin with every single scratch, and I smiled at him as I approached, which I hoped would win his favor. But before I could introduce myself, he growled at me. He said, what are you looking at, kid? You have the usual air of sanguinity, optimism, and confidence. But I, I am sanguinous. I am bloody. I laughed, and he looked surprised. What are you laughing at? He snarled at me. The pun, I said, it was quite good. What's it called, he said. What's what called? Bleeding from scratching psoriasis. I was lucky. I'd cared for a patient with psoriatic arthritis uh, two rotations before, so I'd read extensively about it. And I said, thinking very highly of myself, Auschwitz sign. Auschwitz was a Nazi-run death camp, he said. That was Auschwitz, not Auschwitz. Auschwitz was German. No, he was Austrian, a Jew, and died in the late 19th century, way before the Nazis even existed. Then he says, some of the nurses here are Nazis. What? <laughs> he sat up and stared menacingly at a passing CCU nurse. She smiled at him and then turned her back on him. She's one, he said. Why do you say that? I said, it's a terrible thing to say. I was getting ag angry. What has she done that makes you say that? Okay, Katie said, I'll tell you. I know how sick I am. My heart has stopped twice this week. I am afraid. Then she comes and the other nurses come and they tell me I'm okay. I know that isn't true. They're treating me like a child. There, there, dear, you'll be fine. We'll take care of you. They give me a big smile. And when I try to talk to them like a grown man, they make me feel as if they think I'm stupid. When I begin to say angry things, they'd ignore them and try to coddle me. They're patronizing me. They're infantilizing me. They're being dishonest. I have no say in my own dying. And when any of them quit as my nurse, it's my fault. So they ask the doctors to try to change my behavior, and the doctors give me lectures about it and warn me that I am responsible if their efforts are in vain. Oh, I said. And I was thinking about that. So we, in the subsequent days, would banter. Banter at every time I saw him. He would insult me, and I would react badly to his insult because he hoped I would. I told him what I thought was medically true, that he would very soon die, but that we would do everything we could to delay his death. His personality did not change, but to me he seemed now to enjoy my visit. His zingers at me grew sharper and more insulting, and I gave a shot or two back to him. Then we'd both laugh. On the morning of the day he died from his final cardiac arrest in the late afternoon, he had talked to me in the morning and thanked me for being his intern and for treating him as a man. I mourned his loss, and odd as it seems, remember him with great affection. 
All of us who are teachers of medicine, and that's all of us, know that scientific data are fungible, changeable, technology evanescent, and therapies fleeting. So what those of my age remember and value and still use of what we were taught in medical school and uh, residency and fellowships is not really what our teachers said because that's pretty well out of date now, or at least me, but what they were, thoughtful, caring, curious, skilled, empathetic. Now for me, awareness of the impact on, of a model teacher on students came very early in my life and it was way before college or medical school. And it was a person named Mr. Joe Blake, who was my junior high school civics and homeroom teacher. He was a gentle but very impressive man. He'd uh, fought the Germans in Europe in World War II, and he'd come after the war was over to beautiful Santa Barbara, where I had the luck uh, to be living. My seventh grade class at Santa Barbara Junior High School was almost entirely white, with only one darker-skinned member of our group, Jose, who was of Mexican lineage. Now, during a lecture on the early... Um, third of the 20th century, Mr. Blake suddenly stopped talking in mid-sentence and pointed at Jose and said, don't do that again. Well, we all turned to see what Jose had done, yeah? Uh, but he was just sitting at his desk looking pretty sullen. And Mr. Blake then resumed his lecture, and after a few minutes, he again spoke to Jose. He said, be careful. Next time you do that, you're out of here. Again, we looked and saw nothing. And then very shortly came the third interruption, and Blake just exploded. He said, Jose, I want you to go to the principal's office now. And we watched him, shoulders slumped, go out the door and close it behind him. Then we all turned back to Mr. Blake, expecting him to continue his lecture. But he didn't. He asked the classic question, was what did Jose do wrong? Well, we all again looked around at each other, but this time, nobody spoke, nobody knew. And then one student said, he must have done something pretty bad if you sent him to the principal's office. So then Mr. Blake left his desk, and he went to the door and opened it to let a grinning Jose back in. These two were in on it together because both knew that Jose had been pretty much ignored by our class and had no offers of friendship from us and was thought by us to be kind of slow. And Mr. Blake and Jose then walked to the wide windows of our classroom, uh, attached to which was an outside bal balcony. And he pulled the curtains and opened the sliding glass door windows to reveal a big, shiny motorcycle sitting on the balcony. And the boys in the class, of course, immediately got up and went to examine the bike, chatted with Jose, who had, at the age of 12, mind you, put it together with spare parts. And almost all asked if they could get on it now and later take a ride. When the hoopla over the bike had settled, Mr. Blake called everybody back to their seats and began to tell us the history of the Nazis, the authoritarian Aryan master race and the Holocaust. And so... My classmates and I learned how very was wrong it was to judge the other just because they weren't us. And how one could not assume that any authority, just by virtue of being called an authority, was always right. Years later, as a medical student, I was again lucky to meet another great teacher. 
Preclinical medical students in the mid-1960s at the University of California, San Francisco, were assigned to one full night of observation in the emergency room at Moffitt Hospital. My classmate and I went to the ER, as we had been told we should, but were disappointed. There was only one patient there throughout our entire 12-hour shift. As all seriously ill or injured patients were automatically taken by ambulance to Mission Emergency Hospital at San Francisco General. Now, our patient was a young woman who had come in to be seen in the early evening, and with the intern, the only doctor in the ER at the time, we went over her history and physical exam rather quickly, as she was in no overt distress and had no current symptoms of any kind. She had discovered a small painless lump in her left breast during a shower and wanted to know what it was. We all felt the small, non-tender lump. The intern wrote a note suggesting a biopsy be done, and then he went to take a nap. We waited for the attending, my classmate and I. And when the attending arrived at dawn, he also took us to her bedside. But his was a very different approach. He seemed able to immediately contact and connect with her, to listen to her story with deep attentiveness and concern. And she gave a much more detailed history than she had to the intern, including that she, fearful of the possibilities, had put off seeing a doctor for several months and after she had felt the lump. And she mentioned for the first time that a good friend of hers had just been diagnosed with breast cancer. And this had really scared her and led her to her first palpation of her own breasts. And she began to cry. The attending with great gentleness did a much more thorough examination than had the intern. He got her permission to let us, the students, also examine and learn from her. He showed us among other things, how to observe, compare, and palpate the breasts, including the overlying skin and nipples, how to probe for axillary lymph nodes, how to auscultate heart and lungs, and how to percuss and palpate the liver, and throughout, how to interact with this patient. And while still at the bedside, he told her and us the non-cancer differential diagnosis of breast lumps, including benign cysts, fibroadenomas, and traumatic fatty necrosis. When she heard this, the patient suddenly recalled that she'd been accidentally hit by a baseball in the left breast months before, but had no pain or bruising, so quickly forgot about it. He gave her true attention. He listened. He was caring. He treated her with respect. He thanked her for allowing me and my classmate to learn from her. He gave her hope. And indeed, the biopsy done within the next several days was benign. Mm -hmm. I thought then and now that I could do no better thing than to follow this fellow around to emulate him and so worked under his tutelage for the next half century. This was Dr. Hibbert Williams. When he became dean of the University of California Davis School of Medicine, he recruited me here. And he was the ER attending that I've just told you about. Dr. Williams, now in his mid-80s, is in home hospice care. He's dying. Mr. Blake died years ago. But they are, in a way, immortal. They taught me and many others, and I have now myself taught many others, who I hope will teach their students what these men knew, that those who suffer from despair or disease are the greatest teachers we can have. Thank you. The title of my story is... Du Bois on East 8. 
I had come to the University of California Davis School of Medicine in Sacramento in the early 1980s, and that was a time when the cases of AIDS were rising rapidly, uh, largely in gay men. Most of our infectious disease faculty didn't want anything to do with them. They felt that uh, the care demands would escalate and distract them from their patterned research and swamp their clinics. Now, there were only two internists in all of Sacramento that would take AIDS patients into their private practices. That meant that uh, the number of men presenting to our emergency room with life-threatening pneumocystis pneumonia, Kaposi's sarcoma, and slim disease, profound weight loss, steadily rose. Now, one member of our infectious disease uh, group, Dr. Neil Flynn, went into action. He ceaselessly begged and then demanded from administration that an AIDS ward be created, and he made such a fuss that it actually happened, which none of us expected. It was a small victory, four two-bedrooms at the far end of a corridor in the oldest part of the old hospital, which was the ward East 8. And the patients in these beds were all in isolation, and all their nurses, residents, students, and attendings had to be volunteers. You could not ask anyone to go and do this and compel them to. Now, I noticed early on that almost none of our patients' families or friends came to see them. They'd been abandoned, it seemed, perhaps due to fear or to shame. Now, one day I was standing in the corridor of East State talking with my team when I heard a gravelly voice behind me say, Where's the boys? And I turned to face a woman who looked to be in her late 60s. She had gray hair, a bulky purse hanging from her left elbow, and a very large styrofoam cup with a lid in her right hand. And behind her, there were three other women, all of whom had purses and styrofoam cups and all about the same age as the speaker. So I turned to her, and I said, I'm sorry, ma'am, I don't think we have anyone here named Du Bois. And she shook her head. <laughs> she said, we want to see Du Bois, you know, the ones with the terrible sickness. Well, word had got out, and these women heard that our AIDS patients in East Eight had few visitors. So, as members of the local synagogue's chicken soup group, they had made and brought soup as a medicinal, along with purses stuffed with books and puzzles and games and decks of cards as gifts for the boys who agreed to see them. And they came regularly, always with the chicken soup in hand and purses akimbo, and brought them Yet one more very precious gift. They spent time with these men, and they told them stories, and they held their hands, and they fed them soup, and they listened to them, and they mourned them when they died. And it was from these women, all Holocaust survivors, the great gift of empathy. Now, in 1978, and some of the older members of this group may remember it, the NBC network produced a TV miniseries on the Holocaust. And I am told that during the filming of that in Germany, reporters went to ask the still-living percipient witnesses of the Nazi uh, period why they did not protest. 
And the majority of interviewees said, we did not know. Yeah. Of those who admitted that they did know about the slaughter, not just of Jews, but of gypsies, homosexuals, the mentally ill, the unfit, all of whom the Nazis called untermenschen, subhumans. Most of those interviewed answered, they said, you don't understand. The Gestapo and SS were everywhere. They had the guns. They were killing people. They could have killed me and my family. What could I do? Then the reporters interviewed some of the still remaining rescuers, now called the Righteous, who at great risk had led out of danger these targets of Nazi cleansing. And they said, you don't understand. The Gestapo and SS were everywhere. They had the guns. They were killing people. They could have killed me and my family. What could I do? Exactly the same answer, but a very totally different moral imperative. These righteous were men and women who could not ignore the humanness of others. They could not deny that these others were fully human like them. Empathy is not the same thing as kindness or sympathy or pity or understanding. It is rather knowing of someone's suffering, presence of an inescapable awareness that this could be me. Because of that shared humanness, the rescuers were compelled to help. Now, medical schools admissions committees, assay applicants for grades and test scores and activities, I think we must, and many doubt do, add evidence of empathy as a prerequisite for those chosen to be selected. It is one of the most valuable gifts any physicians can give to patients. Thank you. podcast with Light Years by The National, and we're exiting now with Maisie Star's Fade Into You. Have a great day, everyone, and stay well. You live your life, you go You'll come apart and you'll go Some kind of night into your darkness Close your eyes with what's not there
put your hand 